Hello, listeners. This is Chris Miller, co-host of your all-time favorite podcast, Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. If you like what you hear and you want to lend your support, please go to patreon.com slash trrpod. And for as little as $1 a month, you can receive early access to new episodes as well as exclusive bonus content. That's right, it's a dollar. Come on, you have that much money right now in that weird little gap between your driver's seat and your center console. It's probably rattling around in the dryer right now. If you have a dog, there's a good chance that it has eaten that much change at least once in its life. So, for your beloved pet's sake, consider going to patreon.com slash trrpod and giving us that dollar instead. Your dog will thank you, and so will I. And now, on with the show. You know, when you go down to the city of New Orleans, there's something they don't they don't tell you. The smell? They tell you about the smell. They tell they you about the smell. They tell you about the smell, but everybody talks about the smell all the time. The, the, the one thing they don't tell you is how deeply the smell is ingrained. And it is What did you what did you tell me, Chris, that it's 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 in the It's in the bricks. It's in the bricks. It's in the bricks. It it's is just because I've been I've been to New Orleans just before carnival and just after Mm -hmm. and it just it always just smells like that yeah it just i I was there just after and apparently were you after i thought you were you were there after after. yeah mario gras was on that tuesday i got down there that friday i never spent a lot of time in new orleans it was always like an in passing thing you know Mm -hmm. i would just schedule like a day in new orleans i need to go back that it's definitely my kind of town as it turns out it's not your kind of town not not really um don't get me wrong. There's a lot of really, really amazing stuff there. Like the National World War II Museum is fantastic. Although you, t- what did you also told me that if you went down to New Orleans and went to museums, then yeah, if I talk replaced- about all the museums that I went to, that's how everybody knows I've been replaced by a pod person. Yeah. Although I mean, there's other stuff too. Like I, I toured uh, St. Louis Cemetery Number One, mm-hmm. which is uh, super cool. Um, there's a lot of cool stuff to do down there. Uh, you can take a riverboat ride, and before you board the riverboat, you get subjected against your will to an out-of-tune calliope concert. Ugh. Swell. A lot of busking in New Orleans. A lot of busking. A lot of busking. Uh, actually, quite some... I would say the most talented set of buskers I've encountered in any city yet. It's mm-hmm. up there. It's it's. There's just something that feels right about a couple of dudes just playing jazz music on a corner. Mm-hmm. Or just like... A guy with an accordion. Like, that city just... It just feels right. I guess that goes down easier than Times Square's Zionist Elmo. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Or the Naked Cowboy. Is he still a thing? Is he still doing that? I I don't know. Because he has to be making a pretty comfortable living, like, outside of that now. He gained a decent amount of notoriety. But, uh, yeah, it's... it's, There's something about that city where it, it delightfully doesn't have its shit together. In a lot of ways, uh, and I include things like conferences that happen there. <laughs> yeah. um, it's because everybody's just fucked up. Yeah, that's true. I uh, so when I was giving a presentation, and I watched I a man in the, the front row just lean over and vomit on his own feet. There you go. <laughs> there you go. It's a big easy baby. Gotta love it. Uh, there was a bar. I don't remember which one it was, but they had been open for like. 114 consecutive years mm-hmm. whenever COVID shut down, which is wild that New Orleans took it pretty seriously, which you kind of wouldn't think. It's a city in the South. It's a mm-hmm. transient city. Like, um, They had to install locks. 
<laughs> the, the bar yeah. had never been closed. It didn't close during Katrina. But it, like the French Quarter got spared quite a bit of that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so speaking of uh, things that you just don't understand and can't understand why the smell won't go away, welcome to Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. I'm your host, Rob North. I am your co-host, Chris Miller. I am Kyle Graper. And today we are discuss- uh, we're talking about New Orleans at the beginning here because we're going to be talking about New Orleans a lot in this story. And we are covering the Brothers Lafitte. We're taking some Lafitte picks here, baby. We are uh, I'm really looking forward to the title on this one, man. This <laughs> is a good one from Kyle. Yeah, I have my moments. Yeah, I usually have to do the heavy lifting on this. Couple beers, figure out what the new one's going to be called. But uh, yeah, we've covered our fair share of pirate stories over the course of this podcast, and there are many more to come in the future. But most of those stories, at least the ones involving European pirates take place either during the golden age of piracy in the late 1710s or a little earlier in the late 1600s during the so-called golden age of buccaneering. All of these stories so far may have involved America, but they did so with America as an extension of England. None of our pirate stories have involved America as an independent nation, standing in its own interests and playing a role as a separate power in the region. Until now. The names may be French, but this story is one that is uniquely American and happens to have characters in it that have had deep, crucial roles to play in American history. Now, I was inspired to suggest this series to the boys after I took a trip a couple months ago down to the city of New Orleans, which has a central role to play in the story, uh, as a city that saw many uh, many different cultural influxes in such a short time and was and continues to be a truly unique place that draws in truly unique people. Now, this is a tale of shifting national identities, of warfare, of making your own way in a weird and lawless place. Making your way downtown. <laughs> wow. Selling of, slaves and being an ass. Doodly doodly of making of making something. <laughs> I'm upset. I mean, it, it's not a Keith's puns level of. Keith has some upset, winners, man. But, well, uh, Keith's a dad. Yeah, he's got the dad joke powers. This is true. But it's also a story of making something where people would otherwise expect nothing, and of thumbing your nose at the authorities in a truly spectacular way. This is the story of the brothers Pierre and Jean Lafitte, two men whose family name continues to be plastered all over the Gulf of Mexico, and for good reason. Now, these brothers, from a mysterious background, wore many hats over their lifetimes and would in turn be called pirates, privateers, smugglers, black marketeers, human traffickers, businessmen, mercenaries, freedom fighters, heroes to a fledgling nation, and downright bastard scoundrels. Now, they were clever and charismatic, always able to stay ahead of the law when they were on the wrong side of it, and to take advantage of it when they were on the uh, other side of that equation. Now, no other men in their time were were alternatively condemned and celebrated for their actions, and based on this story, rightfully so. In this two-part series, we'll be exploring their story, how they became a walking embodiment of the city of New Orleans, and and how they interacted with some of the other outsized characters of their time, and we're also going to dispel a few myths about them while we're at it. I'm also going to say it right now, uh, while we're including both of the Lafitte brothers in this series, the weight is going to be a bit more heavy on Jean's side of the story for a variety of reasons. In their partnership, he tended to play the more active role and was the much bigger personality of the two and the much bigger risk taker and thus is associated with a lot more events and stories than his elder brother. However, their stories are linked right to the very end and so we're going to give Pierre his fair dues, something that many historical examinations of the name Lafitte fail to do to this day. So before we go on with the story, of course, we want to give honor to the sources we are using. Uh, We are using The Pirate's Lafitte, The Treacherous World of the Corsairs of the Gulf by William C. Davis. It's a fucking OnlyFans website. (laughs) 
Chris, you had some thoughts about this book. Uh, very good book. A very dense book. Um, God, there's just so much maritime law. <laughs> so much. And, and I, it's I, the I, fucking Star Wars episode one of fucking pirate literature. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> It's it's a fantastic yeah. book. I don't want I don't want to come you're, off sounding like it's, Lisa Jean Jean Binks. Is that what you're <laughs> suggesting? Oh no! You know what the twelve year olds want? Trade embargoes. Um, yeah, it, it's William Davis is a fantastic author. He wrote a ton of books about uh, a lot about the like the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Um, man, this one's just I I don't know if he was an attorney at some point. He, yeah, we were debating this. I, I don't know up. for sure. Because I tell you what, my man knows his shit. Mm-hmm. Like, he does a fantastic job. But he has yeah. another good book on um, Jefferson Davis, yeah. which I think I also own. I also know that I did not buy this book. I own this book. I don't know whose copy of this book I have. Hmm. But I may have stolen a book on piracy. Maybe. Hmm. Appropriate. Uh, if you're listening and you're a friend of mine, uh, I have your book. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, uh, I, I through reading this book, I did learn more about maritime law than I thought I would. Uh, but he is he is a fantastic writer. We also have Jean Lafitte Revealed by Ashley Oliphant and Beth Yarborough. Also sounds like an OnlyFans page. <laughs> I'm gonna this is killing me. And um, this one is uh, this one examines kind of the links between Jean Lafitte and modern uh, modern New Orleans and kind of tracks. The Descendants of Jean Lafitte a lot, um, and also does a lot of, of myth dispelling, but also at the same time a bit of myth making. This book's a little harder to parse. It's going to come into effect more in the second half of the series. And I also have Patriotic Fire, Andrew Jackson and Jean Lafitte at the Battle of New Orleans by Winston Groom. Uh, gentlemen, any other sources you would like to share? I'm looking up Jack Davis here. William Charles Jack Davis. Uh, no, not an attorney. Uh, historian won a ton of awards. Hmm. He's written over forty books. Uh, director of programs at uh, Virginia Tech's Virginia Center for Civil War Studies. Like, oh wow! Oh, okay. Yeah. So this is yeah, a guy who in, definitely knows his shit. Yeah, he's a professor, and now he's just kind of a speaker. I made. I mean, he's great. I'm gonna probably pick up some more of his stuff. Yeah, he's really good. I am too. After reading, after reading the Pirates Lafitte, but mm-hmm. maybe he just ended up. Down a maritime law hole. It was honestly probably that. Yeah. Because the guy clearly did his homework on this one, certainly more than I did. We've all ended up in internet holes before. It happens to the rest of us. Like, it's probably the... And honestly, I didn't see anything like what he wrote in any of the other sources. So. Kyle, anything else to share? I'm just internet hole and I don't know what the hell's wrong with my Internet hole and OnlyFans. Let's go. Oh, boy. Here. You're on one of those today, huh? <sighs> I was over here starting to skin fire. <laughs> so, what? You never heard of that? No, I have not. How long have you known me? <laughs> I say that all the time. I don't know if I've said it on the podcast yet, but oh, yeah. I'm, I'm just looking to put the fire out. Put the fire out. <laughs> That's an inside joke between us. Don't, don't, don't worry about it. So, uh, without further ado, gentlemen, when describing the background of the Lafitte brothers... The words that tend to come up most are obscure and murky. Now, for starters, we don't even really know for sure where the brothers were born, although when they were born is a little more certain, with older brother Pierre coming along in 1770, according to multiple corroborated sources, and little brother Jean being born sometime in the range of 1778 to 1780. Now, Jean Lafitte's published journals, not being the most reliable source for 
anything in this story, indicate that he was born in the port city of Bordeaux on the west coast of France to Sephardic Jewish parents who happened to be conversos, victims of the Spanish Inquisition, which still existed in the late 1700s, by the way. I found that out. Uh, turns out the last execution in Spain at the hands of the Inquisition, 1826. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Uh, but they were conversos who had been forced to flee Spain in 1765 after they were given the choice to convert from Judaism to Catholicism or face potential death or exile and the certain surrender of all their worldly goods and property. Now, Jean also claimed, in other writings, that his father was a Frenchman, but his mother came from Spain, the daughter of a man who had been executed by the Inquisition for, quote, Judaizing. Now, other sources or instances have the Lafitte still claiming a French birthplace in a port city, but instead give these cities as potentially being Saint-Malo in the north, much closer to England, in the Breton's uh, port city of Brest, or... Of course nice. you're going to laugh at that. You nice. I'm trying child. so hard. Every time. We talk about it a lot, too. It just And I know it's got to chap your ass every time that comes up. Dude, it, it, it just boils my piss so goddamn You've got to say it. Yeah. It's, we all heard you say it. Breast. I could be talking about a fucking chicken, Kyle. Everyone's laughing at home, too. Just think of yeah. it that way, Rob. I know. Or they could have been born in the southern French Basque town of Bayonne, down by the Spanish border at the end of the Pyrenees. Now, William, William Davis also posits, thanks to an intensive search of French parish birth records, that the brothers were two of six, or possibly eight, children born to a maritime trader by the name of Pierre Lafitte Sr. and his wife, Marguerite Desteil, both of whom had Jewish roots, although both were baptized Catholics, in the small town of Poliac, uh, just down the coast from Bordeaux. Now, it's my opinion that, given the potential Spanish background and the fact that the brothers could both speak fluent Spanish and French, apparently with a Basque accent, that they were more likely born and raised uh, closer to Spain rather than somewhere up north. So the Bordeaux option or Davis's theory are more likely to be true. Now, there are also rival claims that state that both the brothers were born in Orduña in northern Spain before moving to France as children, which is potentially plausible. Or also in Westchester County, New York, yeah, which, is, which is less plausible. Mm. <laughs> um. There's also another theory that posits that the boys were in fact born on the French island colony of Saint-Domingue, what we now call Haiti, which is not entirely out of the question because Saint-Domingue was essentially a pipeline for emigration further west to the colony of Louisiana, and both colonies had records with the name Lafitte in them starting from the mid-1700s. Now, historian Jack Ramsey in his 1996 book, Jean Lafitte, Prince of Pirates, states that it was likely that the Lafitte family were part of the landed plantation class on the island, but their father died, and his mother, as an eligible widow, took an offer of marriage from a merchant and plantation owner along the Mississippi River, and thus the Lafittes were transplanted to Louisiana to grow up among the bayou country south of the city known as Nouvelle-Orléans. Well, we've certainly seen pirates of similar backgrounds. Mm -hmm. Landed class in the Caribbean. Oh, yeah. Uh, Steve Bonnet mm -hmm. came out of the, the wealthy plantation <laughs> class. Your boy, Steve. Now, whilst Louisiana at this time was ostensibly under Spanish dominion and had been since 1763, emigration of Spaniards to the colony had been practically non-existent, and the French planters that had set up shop there over the previous decades were given fairly free reign so long as they paid their taxes. Now, whichever story you believe, there are almost a few, there are a few almost certainties that thread throughout. First, the boys were likely to have received a fairly basic but comprehensive church education. They would have been exposed to a cosmopolitan cultural environment where they would grow up hearing a multitude of languages. They would have grown up around trade, and they would have grown up around maritime culture, whether as part of the family business or purely based on proximity. 
Now, that's where the similarities end. Sources differ on what the family business may have been and run the great gamut from, you know, sugar grower, of course, with the help of however many people they may have enslaved, to trading vessel captain, to apothecary, to leather worker. They also have a variety of things to say about the boys' childhood experiences, working either as apprentices to their father or as cabin boys among uh, on other trading vessels. Some have them going to sea at a young age. Others have them only getting to know ships through proximity. Ramsey believes that the boys would have moved on to more advanced schooling in their teens before attending a French military academy on the island of Martinique, which did exist. I mean, that that is a matter of historical fact. Whether the Lafitte brothers were there... Not a huge amount of evidence to back that up. I just like how quickly you move past the words cabin boys. I, you, you hustled through there. I know. There was no stopping. Did you see my eyebrows go I up? know my traps around you fancy <laughs> lads. You can't hurt me when I'm the one doing These it. These pipes are clean. Now, some sources say that their father died when they were young. Other sources have their mother dying while they were young. If they can't decide which fucking continent Jean and Pierre Lafitte grew up on, then I'm not surprised there's disagreement on that either. Now, one certainty we can regain here is the fact that something occurred for France that would have made things very interesting for the Lafitte brothers. In 1793, when Pierre was in his early 20s and Jean was likely just entering his teens, French revolutionaries finally overthrew and cut off the head of Louis XVI, Robespierre's Committee for Public Safety took over, the Reign of Terror began, and every country close to France with a king running it started a war with the revolutionaries. Now, since countries like England, Spain, and Austria all went to war with the French after the fall of the Ancien Régime, that meant that their colonies overseas were fair game, which meant naval warfare, which meant the use of privateers. Now, this is a point where the varying stories of the life of the Lafitte brothers kind of converge once again. Sort of. While the sources can't agree where the Lafittes were leading up to this point, they all seem to agree that it was the financial opportunity that came from privateering that really got the Lafittes to sea, and thus to the Americas and the Gulf of Mexico, if they weren't already there. Now, knowing they weren't going to match the Royal Navy for power and number of ships, or leadership, considering that they'd sent quite a lot of their better captains and admirals to the guillotine, French leadership decided that allowing private ships to go out and hunt the coalition's merchant vessels was a good way to even the odds. And while we don't know where they sailed from because of the many matters we already discussed, or when they each took to sea as privateers because the French Revolutionary Wars lasted for a decade from early 1793 onwards, or what sort of vessel they served on, or what role they played aboard said vessels, because their backstories could have them doing anything, it, uh, they, they could have been poor enough that taking to sea at risk of the Royal Navy was the best way to earn a meal, or they could have been rich enough that they were financing multiple vessels of their own. The only real points of agreement here are that both captain, both brothers excuse me, had taken to sea by the time an uneasy peace was declared at the end of 1802, and that their privateering ventures had been quite successful, and had led them to spend most of their time hunting prizes in the Caribbean and the Gulf of Mexico. And so it's not a real leap to suggest that they ended up spending quite a lot of time in New Orleans, which, thanks to its location up the Mississippi ways and all of its surrounding inlets, coves, and bayous, made it a fine base for privateers to take shelter, resupply, and offload prize cargoes and vessels. Now, while the peace may have brought an end to the war for now, it wouldn't last long, and the opportunity for privateering would continue to arise time after time until the end of the French Revolutionary period and the restoration of the French monarchy after Napoleon's final defeat in 1815. Now, it's said that during this period of privateering that the young Lafitte brothers found love. According to his own diaries, whilst his vessel was replenishing on the island of St. Croix, Jean met a young Danish woman named Christine Levine. Such a great name. Yeah. 
Sounds like a Marvel character. Yeah, it was good. It's, it's so alliterative. And they quickly fell in love and married. Whilst Pierre met a woman either on Martinique or in New Orleans named Françoise Sell. A, a little less marvel But it sounds like a name of somebody you would find in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Like a, a dusky-eyed like, tavern keeper with a heart of gold. Definitely sounds like a woman that Serge Gainsbourg went down on. Correct. <laughs> now, Jean apparently had himself a good amount of shore leave as time went by because he had three children with Christine, two sons named Jean and Jean-Pierre, inventive, and a daughter named Denise Jeanette, all in the span of four years. Not bad for a man who was supposed to constantly be at sea. Right. Now, sadly, Christine died giving birth to their daughter, and the children were sent to live with Pierre's new wife, Francoise. But their love lives weren't the only arena in which the Lafitte's bore witness to Titanic events. Beginning in 1798, the French, who, who weren't too happy about their former allies, the Americans, trading with the British, with whom the French were very much at war, began to abandon attempts at salvaging relations with the U.S., and French privateers began to take American merchant ships, which in turn prompted the U.S. to send vessels from their brand new navy to interdict men like the Lafitte brothers. Now, this led to more opportunities to seize vessels loaded with goods, as American ships were now fair game. But it also meant the possibility of running afoul of one of the new shit-hot American frigates. Now, at the same time, the French were no longer under a revolutionary government. Napoleon Bonaparte, Generalissimo of French forces, was now the de facto head of state, and his continued wars and conquests and the alliances formed to counter them meant a constantly shifting environment for French privateers, who always seemed to be finding out new information about who they could or couldn't attack. Uh, French and British military operations in the Americas were also constantly changing the picture, as the capture and recapture of various island bases meant that the places you could shelter and resupply could change from, I mean, practically week to week sometimes. Now, in October of 1800, another seismic shift happened. The Treaty of San Ildefenso saw the Spanish hand Louisiana, which they hadn't been able to adequately administer or protect, and which was a haven for French privateers anyway, back over to the French as part of a peace agreement. And the city of New Orleans and its surroundings were once again under French rule. But but the state of play changed yet again, as at the same time, on the French island colony of Saint-Domingue, a rebellion of tens of thousands of enslaved people rose up against the rule of the white-landed class, under the inspired leadership of a freeman named Toussaint Louverture, which, despite Napoleon launching a massive counterattack, saw off French colonial rule by 1803 and abolished all slavery on the island, set up a government as the only slave uprising to lead to the founding of a new state, and still extant state, by the way. Yeah, I was going to say, the the important part is that it's still there. Yeah, and became the second republic to exist in the Americas. This meant that Saint-Domingue, now the Free Republic of Haiti, was no longer available to the French privateers as a base. This drove even more privateers into the loving, bayou-clad arms of New Orleans. Then, one more massive... siren song of the sweet, sweet Lake Pontchartrain. (laughs) Then, one more massive change occurred in the state of things. On the 4th of July, 1803... Napoleon's government sold the Louisiana Territory, which they couldn't really administer any better than the Spanish, uh, given that their focus was on Europe and the rest of the Caribbean. They sold it to the United States, which doubled American territory, and this included the port city at the end of the Mississippi River, which now went by New Orleans. The Lafitte brothers were by now 
managing to find themselves quite a bit of success as privateers, acquiring a lot of cash, and much like many of those more famous names from the golden age of piracy, had, in their time as privateers, grown quite a skill set when it came to finding good hunting grounds, chasing down vessels and stripping them of their cargo, or taking the vessel for their own use. It also led to them gaining a lot of local knowledge about the waters, the shores, and everything that came with them in the areas that they operated. Plus, you also get to know a lot of the locals and find the best places to sell your acquired gains or who to pay off to put the authorities off your trail. Now, by the middle of the 1800s, the Lafitte brothers seem to have decided that this whole privateering thing wasn't a good long-term solution. And I can't blame them. There were... There were always changing conditions about who and what port, what ships you could or couldn't attack, and the risk of enemy warships blowing your vessel to splinters. Plus, when you got your hands on enemy prizes or cargo, when you sold it off, the government agents who made the purchases always shortchanged you, or they took out too much for themselves. Plus, wars do tend to eventually end. What do you do then? Where do you go? What sort of place might be good for a couple of brothers looking to make an easier living that involved less work when it came to finding out whose ships you could seize and keeping more of their take, and you don't mind doing some things that are less than legal in order to make it happen. Luckily, just such a place was coming into its own. The city of New Orleans was, by 1805, a boom town. People from the American states were looking for opportunities and were moving down to the new territory in droves, as were French emigrants who were uh, either sick of First Consul Bonaparte's shit or fleeing from the island of Saint-Domingue, now Haiti. You also had Creoles from around the Caribbean, plus Latino immigrants from Texas, Florida, Mexico, and South America. You had Native Americans from the Creek, Chickasaw, and Choctaw nations who were making their homes in the city and trading there frequently. You had a community of Filipino migrants who had landed in a ship whilst the city was under Spanish rule that had established their own little quarter within the city. Migrants from all over other parts of Europe could be found, and you wouldn't have to go too far through the city streets to hear Italian, Irish, Polish, Portuguese, or Dutch. Well, mamma mia. Yeah. And that's the thing that always got me about about uh, the Filipino immigrants here. And it's something that I finally like whenever I just read it there and it was it's just so casual. They were trade partners with Spain. Mm-hmm. It is so far from Spain. <laughs> yeah. It is so far from Louisiana. Like the Spanish Empire was monstrous. Like that is so far, and well, it's just real casually. It's like I feel, yeah. you know, and I was like, wait a minute, and it, like I started looking up the mileage, which would be great if I, you know, had my notes that weren't on my cell phone that's been destroyed. Um, I, I could rattle those numbers off, but yeah. it is absolutely astounding, and it's just written so casually. Well, there's that old saying: the sun never sets on the British Empire. The Spanish were doing that three centuries before, right? It's, I mean. <laughs> They were pulling silver and gold out of everywhere they could, but you know, yeah, yeah. The Philippines, you have every uh, their their colonies in Indonesia, their colony trade colonies off of India. Off they of the had coast a nose of Africa. for it, man. Like credit where it's due, because there's not a lot of great things you can say about the Spanish Empire. Because yeah, realistically speaking, Spain's history is not the kindest. No, um, not by a long shot. But. Boy, whenever like they were just out looking for silver and gold, they knew that that was going to be valuable just forever, and they were right. It's still ridiculously yeah. valuable today. I know multiple people that keep ounces of uh, silver in their pocket. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, let's, these people uh, are, let's talk. Uh, these people are a little bit crazy, but after. like, 
after this episode. But yeah, like two ounces of silver, they just keep on their person. Like just little. This bars. is a good time to bring up our new sponsor, <laughs> CashForGold.com. <laughs> bring up our new sponsor. Rob people that carry silver bars in their pocket. <laughs> One guy who who did uh, pass away fairly recently um, was a regular of mine and yeah. had a, a habit of like losing his wallet or forgetting his wallet. He lived nearby and he was nice enough cat. But and I'm not saying like oh it's an, oh it's an eighty dollar tab because old so and so's here. I don't say his name but uh he would like as as good faith would leave his silver bar mm. and it was i think it was three ounces of silver would just leave it he's like hey hang on to this i'll pay that tab in the morning nicest fucking cat man strange <laughs> strange guy he saw a lot of shit in vietnam <laughs> Um, and so he ended up paying his bar tab like they, they would, but, would were going to try to do after the end of the Goonies. We would just shave some off like they used to do in Deadwood. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Yep, you got to pay your tab. Here's one sapphire. <laughs> but that's that's also, uh, you know, the beauty of living in the valley. Yeah. <laughs> I still got people who are so afraid of banks, they just carry a, a wad of silver in their pocket. <laughs> 24 hours a day. Yeah. Uh, speaking of people who have... Uh, questionable relationships with the American government, just because the American government was now administering the territory of Louisiana doesn't mean that they were really in charge. The U.S. wasn't at war with anyone but a couple of Corsair holdfasts in North Africa, so having a military presence in New Orleans wasn't exactly a huge priority. This was, There was a declared U.S. Navy base there, but it was rare to actually have a warship or two around at any given time, and the amount of soldiers around was just as minimal. There wasn't a real police force to speak of either, and though Customs was present, it wasn't a big presence. Not to mention, New Orleans is on the Mississippi, which has plenty of coves, offcuts, streams, tributaries, and down by the Delta, there's thousands of square miles of wet, thickly vegetated, damn near impenetrable, easy-to-hide-in bayou. Now, we don't know what conversations they may have had on the subject, but both Jean and Pierre Lafitte were quite familiar with the area around New Orleans by the end of their privateering years. And by January of 1805, Pierre had bought himself a little property right at the heart of what's now the Vieux Carré, the French Quarter, right on Royal Street. Now, this wouldn't be the extent of their presence in New Orleans, not by a long shot, but they had plans, and lots of them, for themselves and for the city of New Orleans, and they would make themselves a lot of friends and a lot of enemies putting those plans into action, which is what we'll talk about after we take a short break. Tired of listening to whiskey tubers talk about whiskeys you'll never see? Want to hear reviews about whiskeys you can actually afford? How about something you can truly find on the shelf? Are you looking for honest, unbiased feedback about the whiskeys in your budget? Then join us on YouTube at Thrifty Whiskey. Here at Thrifty Whiskey, we do blind tastings of whiskeys that are $30 and under. Bourbon. Scotch. Irish. Indian. And even Canadian. So catch us at Thrifty Whiskey. And until then, may the winds of fortune sail you. May you sail a gentle sea. May it always be the other guy who says, This drink's on me. Welcome back. Now, once Pierre and Jean Lafitte had made the move to New Orleans and decided to set up shop there, the next big question to ask was, what sort of shop were they going to set up? The Lafitte's had a lot of things going for them. They had plenty of local knowledge and contacts. Both brothers had a natural intelligence about them. Both could speak multiple languages, with some sources reporting that Jean could speak as many as five or six. That's insane. And, like, not... Like, he was fluent in two. Mm-hmm. His English was very good. That's a shitload of languages he for somebody... He could also apparently speak Italian, Portuguese, mm-hmm. and I have heard some people say Dutch. Which would make sense. Which those are your trading partners. And mm-hmm. at least passively speak those languages. That's yeah. a shitload. But he was educated. 
which isn't shocking, but he was an educated summer that would teach you all those languages. So he was likely self-taught with a lot of these things. I mean, it was... Where where was it? Like the the it was a military academy. Yeah, I mean back then. But he and his brother. Yeah, because because back then Duolingo was an actual parrot. Yeah, it was <laughs> it was just a green bird that yelled at you if you didn't study. That's Quack! practice your Dutch. Practice your Dutch. <laughs> now Pierre was apparently great with numbers and endlessly patient and even-handed, willing to put in the fine detail work on a job and willing to be the brains behind an operation. Jean, on the other hand, was the charisma. Handsome, well-built, friendly to a fault, and well-spoken, with an ability to code shift between more aristocratic heirs for the city's old money and the rougher edges of the sailors, pirates, and smugglers, and he had no problem adopting the correct mannerisms and dress for any situation. He also enjoyed drinking, gambling, and women. He was a natural flirt and a flatterer, but uh, <clears throat> never was noted to have gotten into any kind of sexual trouble that could jeopardize their business. He... Didn't he like he didn't have a proclivity for going after dudes' wives, you know? Not very French of him. I know, uncharacteristic, mm-hmm. right? Now it seems as though the Lafitte's originally tried to go straight as standard shippers and merchants, but that didn't last very long. Within a short time after arriving in New Orleans, they noticed a couple of things. One, there were a lot of places, entrances, means of getting people and things into and out of the city that weren't being watched closely by the authorities or were being observed by people whose eyes could be averted for the right amount of cash. Second, pretty much the entire population of the city, even the old money crowd, were willing to purchase from suppliers who weren't exactly above board if it meant they could acquire goods without paying high tariffs or could get access to commodities that wouldn't otherwise be allowed into the city's marketplaces. So, the Lafitte's began buying goods around the various colonies in the Gulf and the Caribbean, especially luxury items to go alongside more mundane goods, and leave them at dump sites around the city before they docked in New Orleans and submitted to excise checks from the harbor masters with falsified manifests containing the more mundane goods that were allowed to be traded in the city. Then purchasers could pay the Lafitte's to sneak the goods into the city or could go out and purchase them at the holding sites and bring them in themselves. The Lafitte's demonstrated a natural affinity for this business, But smuggling and contributing to the local black market was at best a high-risk, modest-reward kind of option. The profits were there. They just weren't extraordinary. Then the U.S. government managed to insert a gigantic spanner into the works. Actually, make that two gigantic spanners. At the beginning of the year 1808, the United States began to enforce something called the Embargo Act. Now, since the end of the American Revolution, the United States had been growing commercially and relied heavily on maritime trade to buoy buoy up its economy. However, the British Royal Navy, at war with the French, was boarding American vessels and taking into custody sailors they believed to be British who may have been deserters. Now, this was seen as a serious violation of American trading rights and sovereignty, and the British weren't the only ones pushing America around commercially. So, with the support of the Jefferson administration, Congress passed the Embargo Act, which forbade ships from conducting any trade in foreign ports in order to try and gain some leverage against their bigger European trading partners. This may be one of history's biggest cell phones. (laughs) It's almost like severe isolationism never actually works. The American economy immediately took a gigantic nosedive, and American buyers suddenly couldn't get access through legal means to goods that they had been used to seeing in their markets. Then in the same year, Congress also passed the Act Prohibiting the Importation of Slaves. 
Enslaved people were no longer legally allowed to be brought into American ports to be sold in American slave markets, although the domestic internal slave trade was still very much alive you as well. you got to protect the American industries. Yeah. Again, this outraged buyers who had treated these human beings like any other important commodity. However, both acts of Congress provided a significant opportunity for men like the Lafitte's. The prices of any imported goods or people immediately skyrocketed, and anyone who could acquire these things and find a way to get them into the hands of American buyers would see handsome profits almost immediately. And while the embargoes forced an immediate increase in prices, the means of enforcing them didn't show up alongside the legislation. There weren't a lot of people actively working to keep contraband goods out of American markets. Thus, the Lafitte's decided to greatly expand their smuggling and black market operations, and they needed two bases to do it. One within the city, and one outside. And, I mean, they were really, really smart about how to get this stuff in. You know, they would... One, when they were just getting it in without having to use the harbors, they would do it in small enough quantities that they could get it into the market where it wouldn't set a ton of flags off. But then, like you referenced before, they would bring in legal products, mm-hmm. get those manifests approved, create new manifests that had the goods they intended to bring in, would get the custom agents to sign off on these basically sight unseen, and then come back into the port with their illegal goods with a signed manifest. It's absolutely brilliant. And some of it has to do with trickery, but probably a lot of it also is just plain old bribery. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the guys were willing to sign it sight unseen because here's our shipping manifest and here's 100 bucks for you there, buddy. It's the okay. same reason I said everybody should always have $100 cash in their wallet at all times. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> 100 bucks gets a lot done. Yeah. Now, Pierre would handle things inside the city of New Orleans itself, running the books and appearing as legitimate as possible which suited his skill set perfectly, whilst Jean would run the smuggling itself, finding somewhere to load, unload, and store contraband goods and people, and outfitting the ships to do so. To this end, they turned their eyes south, towards a place called Barataria, named after Sancho Panza's imaginary kingdom in Don Quixote. Yeah. Around 30- I wasn't sure which one came first. Yeah. Turns out it was Don Quixote. It was Don Quixote. Around 30 miles south of New Orleans itself, Barataria is a gigantic bay filled with thousands of small islands, all of them overgrown with thick bayou vegetation and brackish water. Now, setting up their main base on an island called Grand Terre, meaning Great Land, even though it was an island about the size of a stadium, the Lafitte's had concealment, secrecy, and enough area to store and move massive amounts of goods at any one time. Using small boats to unload contraband from incoming ships before they sailed on to New Orleans with their legitimate cargo still aboard, and then through the bayous into the city itself. The camps began to take the form of small cities, and the smugglers began to build everything in the bayou that they would need, including taverns, warehouses, concert halls, and brothels. And I'm not surprised because I was when I was on my trip to New Orleans, I did a an airboat ride through the Baratarian Bayou. It is enormous. Yeah, it's a game preserve now. Yeah, it's a huge game preserve, it's like, and it's it's like 15 miles wide by like 20 I'm, miles long. Yeah, who's going to say probably 15, 20? And miles that's long. the preserve that exists today. Yeah, and it's it's gigantic. I'll tell you what, if I'd have been by myself without a guide, I'd be lost, and you guys would have never heard from me again. 
Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense why you would want to be somewhere where if you don't know where you're going, you're going to die. But the, the trees are tall, tall enough to conceal ship masts. You can't see more than about 15, 20 feet into the woods in a lot of places. It is absolutely, absolutely plausible that you could hide an entire gigantic smuggling operation your, your little pirate kingdom. Yeah. And so the Lafitte's, seeing the growing profits and new opportunities, asked themselves, instead of going out and purchasing the goods that they intended to smuggle into New Orleans, why not just take them? They'd already done plenty of that as privateers, and who needs a letter of mark anyway? The brothers purchased a schooner under what amounts to a shell corporation, and that's making a long story very short. A lot they, of maritime law involved. Yeah. They, hired, uh, they hired a captain and a crew to sail it, but this wasn't a trading vessel. She was meant to go out, capture merchantmen, take their cargo, and return it to the bayous, where it would be smuggled into the city. The first vessel that was captured was a Spanish brig named the Dorada. Her cargo? 77 human beings. Yeah. Now, since the act prohibiting the importation of slaves took effect, human beings were a top priority for smuggling operations, and the Lafitte's were more than happy to oblige the demand placed on the local markets. This first capture netted the Lafitte's a profit of over 18 thousand dollars in current in in contemporary money it's about 2.5 million dollars at modern purchasing power this was only the beginning the dorada herself was converted to a pirate vessel and then captured a third vessel a sloop called la diligente outfitted that was outfitted with guns and that was outfitted to the growing flotilla then they added a, another schooner the petit milan and another brig. Soon the Lafitte's had a fleet of five pirate vessels of their own, carrying 50 guns and 300 men in total, traveling the waters around the Americas, running down vessels to rob them of their cargoes in order to offload them into the Baratarian bayous. Now, generally, Lafitte's ships were not overly violent towards their captures and were encouraged by the brothers to be humane and even courteous. They were interested in cargo, not murder. And most of the time, the, ship, uh, the ships themselves were even left alone, but there were still occasions where violence no doubt occurred. But in the early 1810s, the Lafitte's were running the largest piracy, smuggling, and black market operations in a city full of pirates, smugglers, and black marketeers. They had kind of eliminated the middleman. They mm -hmm. did all of the above, which it, it, it is going to make them more money, but they did have to understand that the the potential for one of these things to go wrong goes up exponentially. Because yeah. now you have so many different people looking at what you're doing. And it probably is another reason why these guys were... They were known for being courteous to the crew. And more often than not, they would just give your ship back. Like, yeah. very seldom did they take it. The brig is a little more desirable than a couple of schooners, just because of its size. But it does make sense, you know... It, as we've talked about over and over and over again, as much as the, the romantic side of piracy is like swashbuckling and taking the rails and cannon shot and all this stuff, they didn't really want to fight. Pirates no. weren't there to to fight. They were there to get paid. They want a quick, easy score. Right. And the less and they, violence there is... And they made a shitload of money. They like all to do it without getting killed. Thank right. you very These much. These guys wanted to go into town. Yeah. They wanted to buy booze and they wanted to buy women. Yeah. That's what they wanted to do. That's why a lot of these people were in the Navy. That's why some people just got... Stolen by the Navy. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, and what the what the Lafitte's would do is they would also buy other people's operations. Mm -hmm. They would say, we'll take over your operation. You work for us. We'll give you a nice payday now. 
and you work within our organization. They were franchising this shit out. Correct. At a certain point. Now, it's been calculated that the Lafitte's may have been near clearing nearly a million dollars a year in profits at their height. And that's in 1813 dollars. Wow. Putting their annual profits at upwards of $190 million per annum at modern purchasing power. This is just the Lafitte's. You expand that out to the entire city of New Orleans, we are talking billions of dollars worth of smuggling and black market goods. A city that's basically built on it. It's built on it. I mean, it, it provided its biggest ex- population expansion after the colonial period. It, it, I mean, the city of New Orleans exists today as we know it because of this period where it was just a pipeline for smuggling. Right. Now, New Orleans was a criminal haven for a lot of reasons that we've already brought up. But when it came to piracy, smuggling, and thievery, there was no place in the Americas more important for that particular line of work. And it's due to the fact that New Orleans was close enough to the Caribbean and Latin America. It had a million places to hide. You could fence your stolen goods, and no one in town who wasn't involved really seemed to give that much of a shit. The Lafitte brothers weren't the only ones who were active pirates in New Orleans at this time. And here's just a few examples of the sorts of men who were operating out of New Orleans and the cultural mix from which they sprang. There was Renato Belouche, born in the same year as Jean Lafitte, in New Orleans to a French smuggler father and a Venezuelan nationalist expat mother. I'm, I'm serious. He started his career at sea as, a fir- as first a cabin boy and then a pilot's mate aboard a Spanish Navy ship of the line. But his mother's influence, being a woman who was no great fan of Spanish colonial rule, were greater on him, and in 1805, he left the service to take job as first mate and later captain aboard a small trading schooner. He and his men soon became bored with the merchant life and decided to join the Lafitte brothers at their base in the Baratarian Bayou. And by the end of the decade, Belouche and his men were repeatedly picked were uh, repeatedly picking up smuggled cargoes to deliver to fences in the city and hunting down Spanish and English merchantmen in the Gulf and all over the Caribbean. By 1810, Belucci and his his men had found another cause, that of Simón Bolivar and his efforts to win independence from Spain for the new South American nation of Gran Colombia, which was made up of what's now Colombia, Venezuela, Ecuador, Panama, and Guyana. They, they still kept pirating, but now it was in the service to the goal of independence. But that didn't stop Belushi's relationship with the Lafitte's or using New Orleans as his base of operations. Knowing that the Spanish would be unlikely to try and attack anybody sheltering in American territory. Now, Belushi would go on to serve with Grand Colombian revolutionaries for a decade, serving as a naval commander in battles at sea and as an artillery officer in battles on land. Now, he would go on to live a long life with a complicated relationship with Gran Colombia and the eventual state of Venezuela, and would routinely return to spend the long periods of time in New Orleans when things got a little too interesting in South America, and he gained significant wealth through basing many shipping interests in New Orleans itself. But things worked out in the end, and he would die a national hero to the Venezuelan people in 1860 at the age of 80. Then there was Dominique Yo, spelled Y-O-U-X. Born in 1775 in the Languedoc region in the south of France, he joined the French Revolutionary Army and became an artillery officer, serving in Napoleon's uh, Napoleon's campaigns in Italy and later his disastrous invasion of the newly independent Haiti. Now, disenchanted by his experiences trying to squash a newly freed state and seeing French soldiers dying in droves around him for all manner of tropical diseases, Yo deserted and caught a ship to the newly American city of New Orleans and signed on with a crew of French pirates most of whom were formerly revolutionary Navy and Army men like himself. 
He had a reputation for daring and boldness, almost to the point of recklessness. And he was eventually was voted in as a leader of his little pirate band, making their living attacking Spanish and French merchantmen aboard their new schooner, a famous, uh, famously swift sailor called La Pandure. He soon fell in with the Lafitte's, and they made frequent use of their Baratarian base and their smuggling services, and became a frequent part of their network. Now, Yo would continue to collaborate with the Lafitte's for many years, and Jean's later diary would go so far as to say that Dominique Yo was merely an alias, and he, he was, in fact, their eldest brother, Alexandre, <laughs> although there is absolutely no corroborating evidence to back <laughs> this up. Now, Yo would eventually be captured by American forces, but would earn himself a pardon through actions that we'll discuss in the second half of our story. Now, he would go on to get into local politics in New Orleans and would become a prominent local citizen. He died in 1830, and after a public funeral with full military honors, he was buried in St. Louis Cemetery No. 1, right down from the pyramid that will one day house the remains of a titan <laughs> of modern media, a man named Nicolas Cage. How much did he pay for that thing? I have no fucking idea. It's got to be so much money. It's got to be a lot because it's big. It's a it's a lot. It's a, it's a whole pyramid. It's twenty feet high at least. It's big. It, I mean, you could you could see it standing out amongst all the other tombs. It's I mean it it makes an impression for something to be standing out that high above an above ground cemetery. Yeah, is very impressive. And then there's James Jeffers, better known to history as Charles Gibbs. Now, just getting his start in piracy in New Orleans when the Lafitte's were at the height of their game, Gibbs was a New Englander who took to sea from a young age. He eventually took part in a mutiny aboard his ship where they set the captain adrift and headed south, taking a letter of mark from the Gran Colombian Revolutionary Forces to go and chase Spanish vessels. However, another mutiny took place, this one led by Gibbs himself, and the crew abandoned their letter of mark and by 1815 took up piracy full-time, making their home base in the waters around New Orleans. Now, Gibbs had a habit of cruelty to his victims and seemed nearly as sadistic in how he dealt with captured crews as the famed psychopath Ned Lowe. Ooh. Yep. He was said to chop off the arms and legs of captured sailors in order to gain intelligence on the location of riches or better hunting grounds. He apparently had a, a penchant for plucking the eyes out of prisoners who displeased him and making them watch with their remaining good eye while he would put the newly disembodied eyeball over a fire. Until it popped. You didn't just have to displease him. Sometimes you just like doing it. Yeah. And more than once he's said to have set fire to ships that he had cleared out of goods and valuables, which is nothing unusual for a pirate. Except Gibbs liked to lock the entire crew of the ship in the hold before he set fire to it. Now eventually he ended up tangling with the sloop of war USS Enterprise, and while the rest of his flotilla was taken or sunk, Gibbs managed to ground his ship off of Cuba and run into the jungle to hide and avoid capture by the U.S. Navy. Now, on the, uh, by the way, this was one sloop of war came in and destroyed five pirate ships in one battle. Damn. Yeah. Yeah, old little USS Enterprise was not fucking around. Now, now on the run, Gibbs once again joined independence efforts in Central and South America, but was caught on to by... by Apparently, he was wanted by Spanish authorities, and his reputation got out to the revolutionaries, and they didn't want him either. So he had to run for it again, making his way back to the anonymity of New Orleans. There, in 1830, Gibbs and an accomplice signed on to the crew of the brig Vineyard, sailing to Philadelphia with a cargo of silver ingots. Much like your buddy's wallet. Yep. Halfway there, Gibbs and his buddy stabbed the captain and first mate to death in their sleep, taking over the vessel and sailing to the shores of Long Island, 
where the ship was grounded and they snuck ashore to return later to claim their silver. However, the authorities got word and captured Gibbs, his accomplice, and several of the crew who joined them after their takeover of the ship, taking them to jail in New York City. Gibbs was charged with piracy by the prosecuting U.S. attorney, who happened to be the son of Alexander Hamilton, and on April 22, 1831, Charles Gibbs was the last person to be executed for piracy in peacetime in the United States. Hmm. Now, yet another major change to the state of play in New Orleans took place on the 18th of June, 1812. The continued British naval interference in American free trade and the impressment of sailors from American ships was continuing to wear on the public, and a Warhawk party in the national leadership was very keen to indulge in a little good old-fashioned expansionism, particularly northwards into Canada, arguing that it was a mission of freeing Canadians from their British oppressors and getting British interests away from American borders. I get it. The invading American troops and the invading American troops would surely be greeted as liberators. Something which has always come true in every instance in American history when they said it was going to happen. For pretty much any army ever. Yeah. Yeah. So, President James Madison gave a speech declaring war on Great Britain, and the United States, with its national army of 4,000 men and its 20-ship navy, went on the offensive against Britain, with her army of 150,000 and a navy of 900 ships. Now, we're certainly not going to get into details on the general course of the war here, just to say that while the United States did see some successes, particularly on the Great Lakes and at sea with previously mentioned shit-hot frigates, for the most part, things didn't go very well at all. The War of Southern Aggression. <laughs> I mean, the Warhawks were the Southern Southerners, yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's a lot easy, it's, it's, it's easy to be the Warhawk Party saying, go invade Canada when you got a whole bunch of states between yeah, you there's and Canada. A lot of, yeah, there's a yeah. lot of wiggle room there. Oh, they invaded New York. Oh, no. What is South Carolina going to do? <laughs> However... The war presented quite a laundry list of opportunities for those more enterprising individuals in and around New Orleans, especially the sort of set that the Lafitte brothers surrounded themselves with. Market goods all immediately shot up in price due to inflation and higher shipping risk, meaning that good money could be made by those who had been stockpiling said goods in the bayous, perhaps, or were willing to sell off their stocks for less than market price, but still at a decent markup. Now, some goods became hard to find, but enterprising men like the Lafittes were able to acquire these goods for the right price or with a little fancy bit of pirating. And a larger military presence appeared in New Orleans practically overnight, keeping a close eye on goods and people moving in and out of, uh, excuse me, moving in and out of the city. But those with access to covert means of transfer could demand a higher price for their services. Plus it was wartime again, and that meant the issuing of letters of mark for privateers to go hunt British vessels in their cargoes. An activity that gained the pirates and smugglers off of uh, of New Orleans th- that had given them their original skill set. Now, over the course of the war, over 300 American privateer vessels would sail into and out of the waters around New Orleans. But between June of 1812 and November of 1812, profits for the Lafitte brothers tripled. However, by this time, there was a new governor in town, William Claiborne. And he was under increased pressure from both the United States Customs Service and from the Department of Justice to interdict the smuggling of black market operations that were cutting in on tax revenues that were so badly needed in a time of war. So with the assistant of U.S. District Attorney John Grimes, a full-fledged investigation was finally launched into Jean and Pierre Lafitte for violation of revenue and excise law, 
and a warrant was obtained for their arrest and the seizure of any related goods. Now, Pierre was arrested in the city, and a party of 40 soldiers, likely acting on intelligence from an informant, made their way into the Baratarian Bayou and managed to ambush and capture Jean Lafitte and about 25 unarmed men in their primary smuggling camp, along with tens of thousands of dollars worth of contraband goods. However, the crimes weren't serious enough for the brothers to be denied bail, and after they both posted and were given a trial date, both men completely disappeared from the city of New Orleans. It's likely that Pierre set up shop in Baton Rouge, and Jean, who was a little bit bolder, caught a ship near Mobile, back to New Orleans, and registered with the harbor master, who was definitely on the take, under his own name, yes, as captain of the brig Diligente, and sailed into and out of the city at will, with no one willing to rat him out, constantly outsmarting the task force of revenue officers who had been sent from all over the United States to apprehend him. What is the 1812 equivalent of the shocked Pikachu meme? <laughs> so these guys who run well, it's a, a smuggling it's a empire cutting, that is still based yeah. on boats. Or boats. Uh, Ran? It, it, I, I, I don't know. Uh, Dolly Madison in a shade of yellow? I don't fucking know. <laughs> now, no knowledge that Jean Lafitte was again operating in the area, just not entirely known where, incensed Governor Claiborne, who called the Lafitte's, quote, Banditi who act in contravention of the laws of the United States Banditi. to the evident prejudice of the revenue of the federal government. And Lafitte's name and supposed crimes made their way to nationally read journals and news sheets. The search for the Lafitte's continued, and their new hideout in the Baratarian bayous, because they immediately made a new one, was discovered in October of 1813. Now, the governor pulled together a task force of soldiers and revenue officers, but unlike the occasion of Jean's first arrest... The gang of smugglers working this camp were now heavily armed, and one revenue officer was wounded in a sharp exchange of gunfire before Lafitte and all of the smugglers disappeared into the bayou and escaped. Now, this caused Governor Claiborne to issue a reward for Lafitte's capture of $500, equal to $65,000 today. And this petty motherfucker. Yep. Lafitte responded by beginning a covert correspondence with the governor, denying charges of piracy whilst pleading guilty to lesser charges and expressing willingness to pay indemnities and back taxes. But at the same time, in New Orleans and the surrounding area, handbills began to appear offering a $1,500 reward for the capture of Governor Claiborne and his handing over to face justice at the hands of the Lafitte brothers. So, so funny. <laughs> now, whether they... Now, there's, there is debate as to whether or not the Lafitte's were actually, actually responsible yeah, for this yeah. or is just some... The Lafitte's were very popular. They were very, yeah. very popular because, as you said earlier, they had a massive empire of, of commerce at this yeah. point. I mean, it's not even just like deeply, deeply connected goods. with the city, I mean, too. And if somebody wanted something, the Lafitte's could get it for them. And it was reasonably priced. Were, the Lafitte's weren't ripping anybody off not because they no. knew that they could... They, they had the market corner. Yeah. Mm -hmm. there's, there's always going to be a premium on black market goods, but this was not out of order level high. They, they had a good business model. They really did. This is, it's like when everybody was running <clears throat> clip joint casinos and Meyer Lansky was the first guy to say, we're going to let people win. Yeah. People will come to our casino and they will win money. So everybody went to his. Not everybody wins money. House always wins. So he knows he's making out like a bandit. His casinos were packed because he wasn't taking advantage of anybody. And not only are people who show up going to play your table games, they're also going to drink. Yeah. They're going to eat. You know, you have a hotel attached, they're going to stay. 
it's yeah, the Lafitte's operated very much the same way. It was like, look, we're gonna edge out our competition, but we're gonna do it in a way that still allows us to just rake in the cash. Now, Jean Lafitte, in spite of his wanted status, started having auctions, posted auctions, advertised auctions <laughs> in the bayou. And once again, he began undercutting local merchants with goods seized from ships or smuggled in by other operations. Now, one of these option, one of these auctions, excuse me, on a small bayou island called the Temple, was raided by revenue officers and soldiers. However, neither of the Lafitte's actually were present, but there were a lot of armed smugglers. And in another exchange of gunfire, a revenue officer was killed and two soldiers were wounded. This townspeople, seeking a good deal on stuff that was hard to find ended up just scattering everywhere amongst the booms of musket shot. However, the raid was countered by the good news that the original charges against Pierre Lafitte had been dropped due to a lack of evidence. This is the essential story of Pierre Lafitte. You can't connect the motherfucker to anything. Yeah. He <laughs> appeared. This is why he's the guy in town. He looks clean as a whistle. He doesn't have that sweet mustache that Jean Lafitte had. No, no. No, he doesn't, but he he's also, you know, not on the run in the swamp. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Ugh, can you imagine the smell of that mustache after living in the bayou for a while? Anyway. I mean, he had a home. Well, yeah. <laughs> but it's still in the bayou. <laughs> in the early 1800s. It's just hot there all the time. You're still yeah. showering in gator piss. It's just hot all the time. <laughs> and that became the University of Florida's favorite sports drink. <laughs> But as soon as he was released, a new indictment from a grand jury for Pierre Lafitte was released, and he was once again arrested in New Orleans and swiftly tried on charges of, quote, having knowingly and, will and wittingly aided and assisted, procured, commanded, counseled, and advised persons to commit acts of piracy, end quote. Now, he was spared the end of a rope, but he was put in jail and was expecting a long-term sentence. Now, his brother Jean was apparently grief-stricken and was planning an attack on the American forces in New Orleans, which, that's a bold mm. undertaking. But he suddenly had a much bigger issue at hand. By September of 1814, the British Royal Navy had established a naval base at nearby Pensacola, Florida, and in the offing had received quite a bit of intelligence as to who the players were around New Orleans. They sent a contingent of officers into the Baratarian Bayou under a flag of truce to visit with Jean Lafitte, and with them, they brought two letters. The first offered Lafitte and his forces British citizenship and land grants in various British colonies in the Americas in exchange for Lafitte's assistance in what they saw as the coming naval fight against American forces in the area. But if the offer was refused, the Royal Navy would be forced to attack the Baratarians, burn their smuggling operation, and hang every single one of them. Now, the second letter was a personal note from the local British commander, a Commodore Nichols, urging Jean to accept the offer. Now, Lafitte believed that the Americans would eventually win in their war against the British, but he also knew that he still had significant op opposition from the Americans, who were, at this time, planning an attack on Lafitte's base in the Baratarian Bayou with a full naval force backed up by hundreds of militia. So, Jean wrote to the governor and several local legislators, asking for forgiveness and communicating his offer from the British, offering his services instead to the defense of New Orleans, noting, quote, I am the stray sheep, wishing to return to the sheepfold. 
If you were thoroughly acquainted with the nature of my offenses, I should appear to you much less guilty and still worthy to discharge the duties of a good citizen. Man, I had to fight my instinct to do a Cajun accent there. You thought about it. <laughs> you thought about it. See what you got to do, Governor. You got to get there, make yourself a rule. Get some Holy Trinity in there, spice it up, make yourself a jambalaya, make your ankles sweat. So, <laughs> anyway, while Claiborne didn't immediately take him up on the offer, two days later, Pierre was able to escape, quote-unquote, from jail when his cell door was left open. Now, the good news was again tempered by bad, and this time in a big way. On September 13th, 1814, Commodore Daniel Patterson of the U.S. Navy set sail into the Baratarian waters with the 15-gun schooner USS Carolina, six gunboats, and three transports with several hundred sailors and over 400 Louisiana militia aboard. Now, Lafitte ships formed a battle line off of Grand Terre Island, but they were almost immediately overwhelmed by superior American firepower, and most of the crews beached and abandoned their ships and fled the area. Now, Patterson's men went ashore into Lafitte's camp, but met no further resistance, capturing about 80 people and eight vessels. But no Jean Lafitte. However, things for the Lafitte brothers, despite Jean's escape, still weren't looking good. Pierre was free, but had lost access to most of his assets and operations in New Orleans. Jean Lafitte was a fugitive, forced into hiding in the bayous once again, with two navies breathing down his neck. But there was about to be an opportunity for the brothers to catch themselves a break if things didn't completely go to shit first. By the fall of 1814, both sides in the War of 1812 were meeting on neutral ground in order to negotiate a peace settlement, and American forces had largely backed off their attempts to gain ground so as not to risk unnecessary defeats. However, despite the fact that they were concerned with finishing off Napoleon's regime, the British weren't ready to back down quite yet, and another significant victory would give them more favor favorable terms in the eventual peace settlement and discourage the Americans from trying anything like the War of 1812 again. Because don't forget, a lot of people forget. The War of 1812, we started it. A lot, yeah. of, people, oh, yeah. a lot of people will act like it was a, an act of British aggression. Mm. Yeah, it's like, uh, you know, they just came back. They yeah. wanted to recolonize. No, it was us. No, we did it. <laughs> now, I, I, I don't think they were necessarily wrong for doing it, but it was absolutely hostilities from, from the United States. Yeah. Now, Secretary of State for War Henry Bathurst issued orders to Major General Sir Edward Pakenham and Vice Admiral Sir Alexander Cochran to launch an expedition to take the mouth of the Mississippi and the city of New Orleans, to destroy it if necessary. And the next month, an invasion force consisting of over three dozen ships and over 8,000 soldiers was dispatched to try and take the mouth of the largest river in the U.S., Within the span of a few weeks, they made their way through much of the territory, the only thing slowing them down being the terrain itself, and a successful defense had yet to be mounted by the Americans. They were aimed straight at the city of New Orleans. Now that the full might of the British army was bearing down on New Orleans and the home of Jean and Pierre Lafitte, it seemed like their luck may have finally run out. But another outsized figure of American history is going to march into our story at the double quick and drag our brothers into a crucial moment in their lives involving one of the most famous battles on American soil. And one of the most famous songs about it. And what will become of them, and how will their lives change because of it? How will Jean and Pierre live out the rest of their days? We will find out as we give our story the Johnny Horton treatment in part two. Our conclusion to the story of the Brothers Lafitte. Gentlemen, your thoughts? I think the Lafitte's are fascinating. They're yeah. more businessman than pirate. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean it. I mean, granted, they do a, and a, they do a fair amount of yeah. pirating. Just about every act of piracy was motivated by money too. But yeah. but they, I mean, these guys ran it like a business. Yeah. The reason why the revenue officers were or so involved uh, in what these guys were doing is because the merchants were pissed because mm-hmm. they were undercutting them because they could. <laughs> yeah. No, you would think as a merchant, like, oh, okay, it'll be easier for me to sell stuff, and then you know the smugglers will they'll jack up the prices. No, no, it's, it's no. not, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> they are also presented with these unique set of conditions too, because of the Embargo Act and the War of eighteen twelve and the British blockade, and which on the coast of the Gulf of Mexico was pretty much non-existent. So, although there was ostensibly a blockade, it was pretty easy for the Lafitte's to get stuff in and out of. In and out of New Orleans, even with the uh, the British Royal Navy there, it's yeah. They are. What did you say before the episode? If it wasn't for the slavery, yeah, it's a these shame guys about are, the slavery. It's a shame they'd be about really, really like. It's a shame about the slave smuggling. It'd be a lot more would, fun if it wasn't for the human trafficking. If it wasn't for that, these guys would be absolutely awesome. Yeah, honestly, yeah. yeah. You can say that about a couple guys that we've covered, though. Yeah, you know. Yeah, that really is kind of the deal breaker, but and and these these guys definitely moved to the sound of their own music, and and well, it's New Orleans, so that music is Zydeco, but it's uh, it's yeah, it's a uniquely American story, and it's an, a story that I think I'm I'm really really glad that because we were eventually going to cover mm-hmm. the Lafitte brothers at some point. I'm so glad we waited to do this until after I'd been to New Orleans. Because having having been able to go into the Baratarian they Bayou, love, they love the Lafitte's there. It, well, I mean, the name is everywhere. We'll talk about that more next time. But yeah, that's more a legacy thing. Yeah, but, yeah. but it it's yeah they are. I I can't. I mean, you know, there there are a whole lot of characters in the history of New Orleans. These guys may be the most New Orleans characters of all. You know, I mean, maybe well, maybe not the. Maybe less so than like the Voodoo Queen and stuff like that, but you know. But it, it's, oh, I love, I yeah. Except for the slavery, I love these guys. It's a They're really cool story, though, and it's really Other it's one that, I was Mrs. not. Lincoln, I was, how was the play? Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> but again, that's something that we're we're going to talk about over and over again. It just kind of comes with the territory, especially mm-hmm. whenever you're talking about pirates. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like it's a lot of the cargo at the time was people. Triangle trade was there for a really long time. Yep. Really long time. So you got to figure that the slave revolt in Haiti was in the 19th century. Yeah. Went went all the way up to 1804. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, Whenever you think about it. The revolt itself was kind of up until about 1802, and then they spent a year and a half kicking the shit out of Napoleon's troops. It was... In, I, we had mentioned that, that you know Napoleon sent troops and they were defeated. He sent thirty thousand troops over the course of it, and fifteen thousand died. That's not including the wounded. Granted, the best weapon the Haitians had was was, the mosquito. Yeah, the disease. (laughs) Yeah, for sure, and the weather, and the weather. But it was. um, But he lost fifteen thousand men. More more Frenchmen died on Haiti than died at the Battle of Waterloo. Yeah, and Haiti's Haiti's not very big. No, no. I mean, none, of, none of the, the, the West or East Indies are very big. No. Uh, outside of Cuba, these islands are very small. So it's, it's yeah, it's a fascinating story. And it's only going to get more so because it really, in, in the second half, as fair warning, it's going to tie into 
a really, really crucial moment in American history, a really crucial figure in American history. Although, is it crucial? We'll discuss that. Because when the battle happened, may not have had to. Right. Um, we but also, also get to add a character that makes them look like saints. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. And we're also going to get uh, into more stories about South American liberation, uh, the liberation movements there, because these guys also have a role to play in all of that. This is a, the Lafitte's are a good example of one of these characters where as we're reading about them, we it's just shocking. Yeah. Like uh, whenever Giacomo Casanova was hanging out with Ben Franklin, why did I think he was alive <laughs> in like the 1400s? Yeah. No, he was just whoring around Europe with another fat guy. <laughs> like, whenever I was at the... like, Sorry, do you mean the title of our future travel show? Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, it's like if you go to the, the Dali Museum in St. Pete, it's, yeah. it's fantastic. But then you see a bunch of photos of him on the telephone watching TV. Like, oh, right. Dali died in, like, the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> Pablo oh. Picasso died in 1973. Oh, yeah, that's right, 73. Pablo like, Picasso could have watched Soul Train. Right. Like, he definitely like, Oh, wait did. a minute. Like, this guy this guy listened to Led Zeppelin. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. He could have seen the Stones. They were touring then. Fascinating. <laughs> the, the Lafitte's are... This is a very Forrest Gumpy situation. A little I mean, bit, like, yeah. Like, we've already got Simone Bolivar in there. It's been fun for me because I I was not familiar with these guys really. Yeah. Like I'd heard the name, but not the not really the story. But they keep crossing over with these, like you said, these moments in history. You're like, oh, 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 when correct. We'll talk about it more next episode. But like certain moments were like, and then this thing happened, and you're like, oh wait, that thing was these guys. Which makes a nice counter because a concern I had with this story, knowing when it took place, one of the fun things about covering stories in the golden age of piracy is as we go over more and more and more of these stories, we can tie them into other other stories we've told. I was worried we weren't going to have something like that here because it takes place in the early 1800s rather than the early 1700s, but man, has it been balanced out. Yeah, it's at the crossroads of, of a pretty important time in American history. Yeah, and in world history. In world history, true. Yeah. So, uh, Chris, before we wrap things up today, where can people find us? Well, all you have to do, hopefully you have a phone, because as of today, I don't. <laughs> Still just loving that. But Verizon has all my money, so that's even better. Uh, you can shoot us an email at trrpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you there. You can follow us on Twitter at PodcastTRR. Uh, I haven't tweeted in a while. The last yeah. one, I wish I could pull that back up. Uh, oh, it was... It was about having sex with M&M's. Yeah, no, it was from January. And I said, I don't care what they do. I'm still jerking off to the M&M's every single morning. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram at trrpod. Is that you with the floor sticky? Kyle, please. I mopped the floor. Well, at least after that one. That could have been any other time during the day. Just brings new meaning to in your mouth, not in your hand. Right. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. And you can join us in Valhalla for just as little as a dollar a month at www.patreon.com slash trrpod. Yeah. And actually, there's another place you can find us now. Correct. Yes, we join the likes of India Ari, Joni Mitchell, and the great Neil Young. Uh, on Spotify, because Spotify is no longer exclusive to Spotify-owned uh, Spotify streaming services. You can check us out there, friends, and I hope you do. Uh, do, do you want to tell them? Or? I haven't. I, I don't use Spotify, so I haven't Googled this enough. Let's, let's, let's wait. Him, let's let, wait. Him, let him have this Yeah, one. let's wait till after. Anyway, uh, yeah, so, yeah, coming up next, uh, next time is, of course, part two of the Brothers Lafitte. And uh, more Lafitte picks are coming.
More Lafitte stuff. When are we starting the OnlyFans? What do you mean starting? Oh, okay. <laughs> it's just not your turn yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're, we're still on... <laughs> It's, it's, I have the most revolting-looking yeah. feet, so I'm I'm the one driving all the revenue here. It's, and then and then with that and you know five another a five dollar donation gets you those sweet sweet Keith Volhop JOI videos. Oh no, I Keith uh, ratings. It's just twenty five minutes of dad jokes and jerk off motions. I just no. I've, I've, step Keith. What are you doing? How does he keep getting stuck in the dryer, Mike? I'm stuck in the dryer again. <laughs> what are you doing with that camera tripod? <laughs> he's not here. I've, I gotta. I gotta represent. I gotta represent for yeah, the, He's he's still uh, on his for the BCSC. He's still on his uh, around the world in eighty days bet. Yeah. <laughs> he's he's gonna come in looking like he just spent months living in the Louisiana. I, I get it, man. This is a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> look like Brackenridge's newest cryptid. <laughs> oh, we, I'm sure we've got one. we got a lot of weird shit in this yeah. town. All right. A lot of steel mills. Even the water's radioactive. Well, with all those lovely, lovely thoughts to send you off with, mm. uh, we'll catch you next time, everybody. Laissez le bon temps rouler, and hold fast. <laughs>